Welcome to Original Reporting, where I look at incentives in the media ecosystem for high-quality original journalism. I'm Tomer Ovadia, and today I look into the history of original reporting and what some call the aggregation era. Quick disclaimer, this podcast is the result of my night visiting Neiman Fellowship at Harvard University, where I studied these dynamics for one month while on leave from my day job. The podcast is not intended to be an exhaustive or conclusive report, and while I normally am employed as a software engineer working on Google News, Google had no role in the creation of this podcast or in my decision to participate in this fellowship, and any opinions I express in the podcast are solely my own. In May 2019, the New York Times published an investigation into President Trump's tax returns. Cable news outlets quickly moved to report on it as breaking news. This is Fox News Alert. As we just told you, the New York Times released tonight new information on a decade of the president's taxes. The New York Times has obtained a decade's worth of his tax information. The story rippled through the media ecosystem as other media outlets picked it up. They cite the New York Times since the reporting was based on documents that the Times had exclusively received, and it would take time for other outlets to match it with their own reporting. Tucker, we're scanning the article. It's important. The New York Times has obtained 10 years of Donald Trump's tax information. The New York Times. The New York Times. Soon, just about every national publisher has picked up the story, citing the Times. This includes CNN, which publishes an article online that is almost entirely a rewrite and summary of the Times' findings. In fact, out of the 19 sentences in that CNN article, all but two have some version of the New York Times reported, the Times reports, or according to the newspaper referring to the Times. One month later, New York Times publisher A.G. Sulzberger spoke about this at the Code Conference 2019 event. So we do this this major um, tax investigation. Um, We have exclusive documents and exclusive sources. No one's able to match it, right? So it's, you know, right now the New York Times has spent you know, two years. It's your story. We have gotten this story to the world. And Google alerted the story. God bless them. It was a big deal. This story is a big deal, and Google alerted them. They alerted CNN's version. So to some extent, this is not new. Those who produce news content, which we'll refer to as publishers throughout this podcast, have used each other's content throughout history to differing extents and in differing ways. Let's consider two historical examples. The first is what's called rip and read. To explain, here is Lowell Bergman, a longtime investigative reporter and recently retired journalism professor at UC Berkeley. Rip and read basically begins with the telegraph and the invention of the telegraph. The telegraph was nothing short of a revolution, enabling messages to be sent much faster than previous means. When you have radio, you you hear the sound, often in older broadcasts, of the teletype machine going off, and then the the idea is that the person, the announcer, or the so-called host, it, uh, rips the copy off the machine and reads it Good evening to you. The revelation and the admission on air without checking. So the radio stations in these cases aren't adding any reporting to or even checking what they receive from the wire service. They just read it verbatim. And there's actually, legally, uh, there was a case back in the ni- mid-1960s involving Walter Cronkite and CBS News where they were sued for basically doing a rip and read on the air uh, on broadcast TV. And in the second example, there is, of course, the Associated Press, which has helped publishers share content with each other for more than a century. 
Here's Professor Martha Minow, the former dean of Harvard Law School, who recently produced a report on the changing ecosystem of news. The introduction of the Associated Press was a effort to pool resources so that there could be original production with the cost shared by multiple uh, distributors. But with the development of the internet, these dynamics became much, much more complex. Professor Minow explained one of the most important changes, that those organizations that produced original news content and employed journalists used to also control the monetization and distribution of that content. In other words, print newspapers used to produce the content by employing journalists and distribute it by printing and delivering newspapers. The internet essentially blew that up. For the most part of what we're seeing is a big shift from a model in which there's a virtuous cycle of uh, profits that are generated and then reinvested in the development of new story, new content, all under one roof, to instead distribution occurring in many, many places far, far away from where the news is generated, where the coverage is occurring. So even in the early days of the internet, Given just the ability to link to other web pages, you might expect there to be less of an incentive to rewrite other content. For example, CNN could have just linked to the New York Times investigation instead of rewriting it. We'll look at why rewriting and summarizing, also known as aggregation, continue to happen, and we'll learn about a particular era in which it was extremely popular. So Jeff Jarvis, a media critic and associate professor at the City University of New York's Journalism School, made the case against aggregation early in 2007 in a now famous blog post. Here's the first minute of it. It's titled, New New Rule. Rule. Cover what you do best, link to the rest. Try this on as a new rule for newspapers. Cover what you do best, link to the rest. That's not how newspapers work now. They try to cover everything because they used to have to be all things to all people in their markets. So they had their own reporters replicate the work of other reporters elsewhere so they could say that they did it under their own bylines as a matter of pride and propriety. It's the way things were done. They also took wire service copy and re-edited it so they could give their audiences the world. But in the age of the link, this is clearly inefficient and unnecessary. You can link to stories that someone else did and to the rest of the world. And if you do that, it allows you to reallocate your dwindling resources to what matters, which in most cases should be local coverage. This changes the dynamic of editorial decisions. Instead of saying, we should have that, and replicating what is already out there, you should say, what do we do best? That is, what is our unique value? It means that when you sit down to see a story that others have worked on, you should ask, can we do it better? If not, then link and devote your time to what you can do better. Here's Professor Jarvis reflecting on his post 13 years later. What was the reaction that you received to it? I think the phrase, do what you do best and link to the rest will be on my gravestone. So again, he writes that blog post in 2007, the same year that Twitter is founded and when Google and Facebook are still young. And yet, as we'll see more later, in the years after he wrote it, things move very much in the opposite direction. So it sounds like, to some extent, and I'm curious to what extent do you believe this is true, people didn't listen to this post? No, they got it. But the uh, structure of our business, in terms of how we're organized in newsrooms, and in terms of how our business is organized, what our motives are, um, stop us from doing this. 
tell me more about that. So what motives are keeping people aggregating and copying as opposed to producing more original work? A little bit of ego and a lot of money. Um, this isn't as current anymore, but you, you might remember the story a few years ago that BuzzFeed did on that two-color dress. Some people thought it was yes. these colors, other people it was that color, right? So I, I, for a time, I would go to journalism conferences and ask the large audience, who all had your own story, your own version of that story? And everybody's hand would go up. <laughs> yeah, right. And I'd say, why? You just rewrote BuzzFeed. BuzzFeed's version was fine. It was it was everything you could possibly want to know that you couldn't possibly have added any value to this. Why did you do it? Because you needed your own content to fill your own page, to get your own clicks to it, to get your own eyeballs on the ads there, to get your own pennies. So publishers were operating more and more in an extremely complex environment of incentives influenced by other companies. This includes an explosion of advertising technology companies and also tech companies like Google, Facebook, and Twitter, which we will refer to throughout this podcast as platforms. They all put pressures on publishers to do things that they otherwise might not or to not do things that they want to do. In this post, it was just kind of a duh moment where I said, what are we doing wrong? We're, we're dwindling in our resources but we're still doing things the way we used to. And, the, and the, the, the tragedy is that's still the case. We have far fewer reporters, but because of the economics of media that forces us to have our own page views and our own clicks and our own ads and our own pennies, we rewrite each other all the time. Some new digital native publishers were founded that were built around these environments. With serious money behind it, the Huffington Post now draws 13 million visitors a month. And these new publishers depend heavily on aggregating other publishers' original content. They grow quickly and their traffic starts to rival, even that of the most reputable legacy publishers who've been around for more than a century. Here's a CNN report on the five-year anniversary of the Huffington Post in 2010. Behind it, the Huffington Post now draws 13 million visitors a month. Not far behind the Times is 16 million and ahead of the Washington Post, LA Times, USA Today, and other old media publications. Despite concerns, there was hope that these new publishers were on the way to figuring out the future of news on the internet. Her website evolved into perhaps the first real online newspaper. But it's not the serious blog posts that draw the attention. It's the stories that Huffington site grabs from other news organizations that actually pay reporters to gather information. She sends some traffic their way, but feasts on their content, repackaged with flashy headlines and photos. Here's a headline from the other day. McCain accuses liberal media of distorting Arizona race. Click on it and you get this short piece, which is a summary of a story reported by, as you'll see if you click one more time, Politico's Glenn Thrush. So other digital native publishers are starting to adopt a similar strategy. But no one imagined this kind of success, which has spawned a whole bunch of similar sites. And this is the beginning of a sort of era of aggregation. I spoke with Bridget Williams, who was at Business Insider as the senior vice president of business and audience development during this era. Oh. It's very interesting because if you look at Business Insider in the early days, that's how they made their mark, is they would take a very long form, kind of boring uh, piece of content that Wall Street Journal might have published, 
and they would make it fun and they would get it out there fast and they would summarize it and make it visual. And they had a ton of growth from that. You know, they did a, a lot of other things as well, but they did that also. We'll get into this more later, but it's important to appreciate that there was an editorial argument for the sort of content that these digital publishers were producing. I mean, I mean during the time that, that Business Insider was doing it, it was really novel and really interesting, which was news is taking too long. We're going to go really fast and get it to people faster. And we're going to make it more interesting. And some of it is original. Some of it is like adding voice and tone to really dry stuff. And some of it is aggregation. And it was a land grab. You know, it was really like everyone going for like, there's a thousand websites blooming. Let's go build an audience and teach people that Business Insider has always got it first. BuzzFeed has become famous for highly clickable news items like 18 reasons glass doors are the worst, <laughs> nine things squirrels are up to these days, and the 13 most important watercolor narwhals on Etsy. So this dynamic is peaking roughly around 2010. Let's get into why it was happening. Hi, I'm Jeff Sonderman. I'm the deputy executive director at the American Press Institute. Certainly around that time, 2010, maybe give or take a couple years before and after that, I think we've seen a big rise then in uh, what you might call aggregation-focused uh, websites or even just off-platform things, so like Facebook pages and, um, and newsletters and things like that. So I think it's, it's probably primarily driven by at least a couple things that I'm aware of. One is the rise of sort of platforms for social and search uh, that made that so possible um, to both you know, discover um, uh, all different kinds of links and news and information from all over there and then to build some kind of community around that uh, where you can just redistribute it. Um, all of that kind of required some of the infrastructure that things like Google, uh, Facebook, and, and on the later end of that, uh, Twitter kind of were putting into place for the first time, really, you know, and it's sort of coming into real mainstream use for the first time. Um, so that was one thing. I think we were entering an era where information could just flow in so many more ways and be discovered in so many more places that aggregation started to feel like a thing where, uh, one, it was easier to do, and two, there was this somewhat uh, heightened sense of information overload, right, that, that the problem isn't creating the information anymore. It was it was making sense of all the information. And so there was a service to be done, in some cases well, and in, in some cases kind of cheaply, but um, by sifting through a whole lot of noise out there and trying to identify uh, signals in it uh, that you could then curate and distribute to your audience. Um, some of that was done thoughtfully and you know, with a sense of reinterpretation uh, and explanation of the things that you were aggregating or uh, making smart choices about. Some of that was done kind of in mass, sucking up and republishing and, and quoting exactly as many characters as you could get away with <laughs> without adding much value to it. So with more and more content on the internet, publishers look to do more than just create content. They also try to organize and filter it, which often means summarizing or rewriting it. And perhaps most importantly, there are economic incentives to aggregate. Here's Professor Jarvis again, explaining the rise of what's called programmatic advertising. Programmatic and its cousin retargeting 
is familiar to most any consumer because when you go to Amazon and you see a pair of boots you like and you click on those boots, those damn boots will follow you around for months, even after you bought them because it's just stupid, right? Um, because what matters in that now is the data point about you that you are a boot lover. You have boot propensity to buy boots. And, and so then the ads about you can appear anywhere. Uh, you can be visiting weather.com or you can be visiting food.com and those damn boots are there because each advertiser is in a programmatic marketplace where they said, oh, I've got her. She's the boot person. Who wants her? And a dozen other sites are doing the same thing. A bidding occurs uh, in real time from the time you open your browser window of that site until the ad appears, all this has occurred in the background. So for content that makes revenue through these types of ads, it doesn't matter what type of content attracted the reader and appeared alongside the ads. And so uh, the value there is the data point about the user, not the environment. Now in the old days, in my days in media, you wanted to put a boot ad in, you'd go to Outside Magazine and put the boot ad in, right? Um, well, no more, because the environment doesn't have value. The environment is a commodity. The environment doesn't matter. The content there doesn't matter. It's just a question of whether or not two eyeballs have been attracted to that page so I can bid to try to get that boot ad in a competitive marketplace where the prices are going to be driven inevitably down. So it doesn't matter what content I put there. My content is a commodity. Uh, my site is a commodity. Um, and in a sense, the data about the person is the commodity. So if you can make as much revenue by putting ads next to an expensive investigation that took you years, as you can by placing ads next to an aggregation of someone else's investigation, doing the latter keeps costs much lower. And it was a time when the web was still largely a page view economy. Um, and advertising was the main way that things were monetized and advertising basically amounted to page views and impressions uh, for display ads on, on websites. And there wasn't a lot of discernment about where that traffic occurred. So if you could get 30 million uniques a month to your new aggregator site, that would make you as much money as 30 million uniques on any other news site that was creating content. Um, and so there was a rush to say like, well, if we can get a lot of traffic without a lot of production cost uh, and the same amount of revenue, uh, the economics of that just pushed that there are going to be a lot of new things trying to get into that aggregation game. And then the site Upworthy is founded in early 2012. And the founders actually claim on Bloomberg, for example, that they're trying to address this issue and that they're trying to raise up worthy content. Just try to make stuff interesting. Try to figure out why somebody who is very busy, has a thousand other things to do, has 1,500 things in their Facebook newsfeed that they could click on. How do you make them care about this right now? And we, we basically started by throwing out the old playbook of the proper way to write a headline, the proper way to run a media company, and decided to just say, like, how would we do it now for our friends and for the people we know, what's, what's real and personable and actually connects with people. But remember, they're running ads on their site. And say, even if they are succeeding at exposing more people to important stories, some of those people are visiting Upworthy, giving them revenue instead of the sites of those publishers who are paying for the actual original reporting and production of that content that they're aggregating. Now, as Upworthy's traffic has shot up, 
so has sort of controversy around the site. What do you say to people who, who, who claim you're stealing their content and just changing the headline? We actually get very, very little uh, feedback like that. The actual feedback... And remember that platforms are figuring out the internet too at the same time. And what they are doing is affecting publishers. Facebook in particular had algorithm changes every couple years that, you know, for a time were flooding news sites with all kinds of traffic to aggregated stuff that just had a really good headline. Um, there was, I think, a couple years in there where... Um, the site Upworthy was one of the top Facebook referrals and was just sort of, you know, doing curiosity gap headlines and, you know, uh, in, inventing ways to hook people and get them to, to come and click through. So legacy publishers, the creators of original content that these new media companies are aggregating, try to push back on this. In early 2011, Bill Keller is at the end of his tenure as executive editor of the New York Times, and he writes a column titled, All the News That's Fit to Aggregate, a play on the Times' long-standing slogan, All the News That's Fit to Print. He writes that market valuation is an honor no longer bestowed on those who labor over the making of original journalism, but on aggregation, which he compares to piracy in Somalia. He even refers to Ariana Huffington, the founder of the Huffington Post, as the, quote, queen of aggregation. And he mocks AOL's purchase of the Huffington Post in early 2011, saying that, quote, buying an aggregator and calling it a content play is a little like a company's announcing plans to improve its cash position by hiring a counterfeiter. So he presumably gets into at least a bit of trouble for this column because a few days later, he publishes a follow-up, clarifying his position. He writes that he, quote, loves aggregation, but that it's, quote, no substitute for boots-on-the-ground journalism, and that there's often a thin line between aggregation and theft. He also writes that he, quote, likes Ariana Huffington. Sorry to disappoint those folks yearning for a WrestleMania smackdown. And he goes on to note that the Huffington Post hired some good professional journalists, even from the New York Times itself. So, in essence, they're trying to become more like one another, Given the negative press, these new digital publishers are trying to show investment in original reporting, and at the same time, legacy publishers themselves are feeling pressure to experiment with aggregation. I reached out to Carrie Lowerman, who was the editor-in-chief of Salon at the time. You know, I mean, I kind of think of it as the Huffington Post era. You know, a lot of people, including Salon, invested in having, you know, a team of people who are doing really fast aggregated aggregation off of other people's work. And... We experimented with it for, you know, a little while. I certainly felt pressure uh, to, to experiment with it. Kerry eventually gets support to shift more towards original reporting in late 2011, but he says that shortly thereafter, he left Salon and they returned to the aggregation strategy. So even to the extent that these publishers are managing to stay alive, the jobs and roles of their journalists have evolved substantially. Here's Professor Jarvis again. I mean, I know newspapers across the country that uh, have gone digital, God bless them, but fully digital. But the job of the journalist in some cases is to look at what's trending and then to write something that's going to grab some clicks from that thing. The fact that it's already trending means it's already been reported. There's really nothing the place is going to add. Uh, one example recently was when Kobe Bryant died, uh, people made fun of one publication, I'll spare them the embarrassment of saying who, uh, where they, you know, 10 star uh, athletes who've died in crashes. 
Now, I've said that to some people with my mockery in my voice, and some people say, well, that's what we've always done. That's, that's what with context, we do our story, because that's what we're used to doing is manufacturing a product called content to fill a product called a publication. Rather than saying, are we informing the public? Are we, are we adding value to people's lives and communities? Uh, no, our business is now not built around that. And here's Bridget Williams again, who was at Business yeah, Insider at the time. Brian Morrissey once said, like, everyone had their news whip dashboard that said, you know, snowstorm is trending in New York. Everybody, give me four paragraphs on snowstorm now. <laughs> the Onion even mocked this dynamic. I noticed that Kerry had brought it up in an article about Salon at the time, so I asked him about it. The headline of the, Huff of the Onion article was Huffington Post employees sucked into aggregation turbine, horrified <laughs> workers watch as colleagues torn apart by powerful content gathering engine. <laughs> yeah. And you, yeah, and you yeah. described that your sort of explanation, interpretation of that article was that nobody wants to feel like a cog. Can, yeah. you, can you talk to me about that? What did you mean by that? You know, on any given day, this is still true. On any given day, if there's a big, if there's big breaking news of any kind, and I'm trying to think of what, you know, you know, Jim Lair just passed, um, yeah. for example, um, kind of a, a sad example. But, you know, if you plug, you know, Jim Lair into Google right now, Google News right now, you'll get a ton of stories will come up. But the number of those stories that will have actually, that are actually original are probably pretty few. The rest are going to be quick aggregations off of each other, maybe off of the AP story. So even legacy publishers started hiring journalists to aggregate, and they're writing stories extremely quickly and with few sources and a high likelihood for mistakes. Even the Washington Post is doing this, and in a moment that sort of captures the era, a Washington Post reporter named Elizabeth Flock writes an article that is published without crediting the source, Discovery News. Editors find out and append an editor's note to the top of the article, apologizing to Discovery News and stating that an earlier version of the article made inappropriate, extensive use of the original report. The reporter told the media publication Pointer that she then resigned, explaining that, quote, I've always sought a pure reporting position over one that involves aggregation, and I believe the best avenue for this is outside the Washington Post. So the reporter felt that the best place for a pure reporting position was outside one of the most historically respected media companies and one which helped publish the Pentagon Papers. It becomes enough of a big deal that the Washington Post's ombudsman at the time, Patrick Pexton, writes about it. An ombudsman, by the way, is someone employed by a newspaper to investigate and write about internal issues. The reporter was working for a blog within the Washington Post that, the reporter told the ombudsman, was supposed to reach one to two million page views per month. And she said she was often the only reporter working on it, averaging nearly six posts per day. She had made another mistake recently that also led to an editor's note. So the ombudsman wrote that this was, quote, plagiarism perhaps, but also a perpetual danger in aggregated stories. She said the mistake was hers. She said it was only a matter of time before she made a third one. The pressures were just too great. The ombudsman concluded that, quote, the post failed her as much as she failed the post. And in speaking to other young bloggers at the Post, the ombudsman wrote that, quote, they felt as if they were out there alone in digital land, under high pressure to get web hits, with no training, little guidance or mentoring, and sparse editing. Um, and no, I mean, none of us got into this business to uh, rewrite, to be a rewrite desk for someone else. Um, there's just no real 
real joy in that. You know, what happens in any marketplace, right? We're moving from a market of scarcity to abundance. So there's now no limit of ads. When volume goes up, what happens to prices? It goes down. When prices go down, but you can't change the circumstances, desperation goes up. And so we inevitably are led to a world of Katz and Kardashians and ultimately Donald Trump. We are in a clickbait world. And we don't know how to get out of it because that's where the money is coming from, from the pennies from ads. But in a, an abundant world now of programmatic and Google and all these other factors, the value of those ads goes down. So we need more damn clicks. We need to fill more pages as efficiently and quickly as we can. And the easiest way to do that is to rewrite somebody else. In the next episode of Original Reporting. I don't know that anything could make up for the volume that was created by local newspapers, for instance. But then when you do a search of that story, it's their pickup of my story that gets the Google search. We look at where original news content is created and how incentives to produce it have changed. Because that then would increase the value proposition of original content. Huge thanks to the Neiman Foundation for supporting the research behind this podcast, especially Leah Becerra for helping make it possible and the Neiman Fellows for their invaluable guidance.